session two. If you're out in the hallway and you can hear my voice, it's time to rock and roll. Um, has this been okay for you guys so far? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's fun to have Phil and Dwight. <laughs> you guys, you know, I tell you, hey, we've got some pastors in the church, and, you know, I tell you why I'm so nervous every Sunday. They're here tonight, and they're sharing with us, but... Um, also, I just love spending time with these guys because they have years of wisdom and experience, and so um, I, I love the little coffee chats that I get to have with the two of them and feel like it helps our church tremendously. So thank you guys for jumping in and being a part of this and, and helping out, and I know it's a blessing to me. I think it's a blessing to the rest of our church family, too. All right, so here's the second session, and it is the question, is the Bible reliable? Now, that's not a theoretical question for a lot of people. In fact, my, my aunt, um, she would consider herself not to be a believer. She grew up in a Catholic setting, and when we dialogue and we have conversations, this is one of the major hurdles for her. So this is something that she looks at the Bible and she goes, yeah, if, if, if this thing is a part of the deal, then it's not a deal for me. Because in her estimation, the Bible is a book that's really been contrived, it's been brought together, the church had way too much influence in how it was brought together and the different things that, um, that uh, are featured in there. And so what we need to do tonight is to dig into this question, and Sherry, if you're watching this, uh, hopefully I presented that in a fair way. Um, I, you know, hopefully she would hear that and go, yeah, that's right, that's how I feel about it. But uh, what we're going to do then is we're going to look at this argument against the Bible and some of the questions that people kind of pose to it and go, okay, what about this? And what about this? And we'll just talk through um, about the Bible and why we as Christians can believe it and why we can commend it to other people as well. Now, here's one of the things that I want to say to the church family that's here. One of the things that we need to do when somebody is, is kind of against the Bible, if you're not into, if you don't believe that it's a, a book that's helpful, if you believe that it's kind of manipulated and and uh, just un, un, unhelpful and untruthful. One of the things that we need to get good at as Christians is to encourage people to read it. Um, if people are willing, okay, I understand maybe you don't like the Bible. Have you ever read it? Have you ever spent time with it? Because it really is a fascinating book, and, and it's not just a normal book. It, it does stuff to the people who read it. So we need to encourage people to actually interact with it, not just you know, characterizations of what they think it is or isn't like. Uh, Martin Luther put it like this when he was talking about the Bible and whether or not we need to defend it. He said, no, we don't. Christians don't need to defend it. It's a lion. Let it out of the cage. And so Christians need to be people who just say, let's let the, the Bible do a lot of its own convincing. But let's interact with um, some of these different questions that people might pose about why they wouldn't trust the Bible. So one of the questions could look like this. Couldn't the church have just written a politically charged piece of literature for their own agenda? If you're looking at kind of the church history and you go, okay, how did we get the Bible? How did it come together? Why is it that these books made it and these ones didn't? It feels to me, this is how someone might say it, it feels to me like the church had too heavy of a hand in how, the, how it was put together and maybe they were just promoting what, whatever they wanted to promote. Maybe they were just pushing the agenda using the, the writings that they felt would be most helpful. Now, now, when we begin to address this, there's a few things that we can say. First off, the content is far from self-serving. If you read what the Bible actually says, it is a strong critique of people. And so even Christian leaders were, were judged more severely. And so the, the content itself doesn't necessarily promote what, what you could imagine would be the most beneficial things for the church. It runs in a different direction. It teaches things like repentance, and, and it teaches the need of humility, and it teaches all these different things like that. So the content itself isn't really self-serving. The content really challenges us to repent and humble ourselves and trust in God. Another thing that we can say is that the authors who wrote different sections of the Bible— by their writing, they didn't really gain fame and notoriety and status and wealth. In fact, in, in many cases, it went the other direction. That if they were willing to associate with the way and associate with the book of the way, they, they actually ended up in difficult scenarios. 
So they weren't writing in a way that was like, you know what, if I publish this thing, it could get on the bestseller list and everyone could be reading it and I could be walking through town and people are like, hey, there he is. That's the author of that book. The reality is most of them were very obscure. And, um, and by writing, they didn't gain this huge following. They, they actually associated with this minority movement. And so the Bible and the content itself and those who wrote it, um, I, I don't think really lends itself to the argument that the church put this thing together for its own benefit. Now, to be a follower of the way actually aligned you with this small yet growing movement. And this movement was, again, the minority, but it was also a persecuted minority. So if you're willing to be a follower of the way, you're really putting your life on the line. And so by associating with this book, Uh, People were being cut off from their communities. They were being hated and threatened and maligned. And most of the New Testament writers were actually martyred for their faith. And so they were following this thing and communicating the reality of what God has said. and And it resulted not in, again, not in their notoriety, but in their being martyred and suffering for the faith. Um, The writers weren't wealthy. They um, actually taught generosity and simple living. And so, again, it just doesn't, the content of the book and the writers of it, it doesn't send a, seem to lend itself to that argument that the church really had a, an axe to grind and they were just trying to push their agenda. Now, I will admit that the, there are abuses within the church. There are failures within the church. There were things where the church tried to suppress the word so it didn't uh, affect the ordinary believers. There were things that were going on, but... That wasn't them following the word or, or manipulating the word. That was them disobeying the word. That was them going out of step with what God has revealed to us in the scriptures. So when the church has failed to live up to its calling, it's not on account of the Bible. It's, it's on account of their unwillingness to submit to what God has revealed in the Bible. So that argument for me just doesn't, doesn't float. Couldn't the church have written a politically charged piece of literature for its own agenda? To me, I say, I don't, I don't think so. It doesn't appear that way to me. Um, a second question that someone might ask is, didn't the church pick the writings that were most favorable for them? Because there were a lot of different writings. I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have 66 different books in the Bible, but during those times, other people wrote other things as well. And other people wrote other books about spiritual topics and things about Jesus and all this different stuff. So why is it that we have this smaller collection? Why don't we just include everything? And if the church is kind of saying it's this stuff and not this stuff, then wasn't the church trying to pick what they felt would be most advantageous for them? So what was the process for the selection? So there were things like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas or the Apocryphal books and um, what I've come to, to realize is that these books just don't match the criteria that was used to determine whether or not something was Scripture. There was a process that the early church used to determine whether something was going to be included. And, and, um, and, and I think that their process was really good. I'll share it with you in just a minute. But a popular argument against the Bible right now is, is that you know, the church did some, some pretty wonky things and they, they omitted some other books that, uh, that maybe they shouldn't. And I think that there's some popular stuff out there right now, things like the Da Vinci Code, um, things that you can watch on the National Geographic Society. There are all these different kind of alternate storylines about material that you don't have because the church doesn't want you to have it. And the truth is, when you begin to look at how the selection of the books actually unfolded and the stuff that was omitted, there's actually really, really good and and uh, sincere reasons for those things not being included. So for me, I feel that the criteria for including something into the scriptures was, was actually very good. That it, it's something that's clear. It's something that makes sense to me. I don't have any qualms with it. I'm, n- I'm not upset that there aren't these extra books included. And you can read them, by the way, if you'd like. I, I don't think that they match up to the rest of what we consider scripture. So here's the criteria. If you're wondering how something got into the Bible... Uh, And this is, I think, just talking about the New Testament stuff. So the book had to have an apostle's signature. If something were to be included as scripture, it had to have the kind of the, uh, 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 an apostle verifying it. So whether that meant that there was somebody who was writing it in the name of them, 
or they were directly writing it, it had to have their signature on it. Somebody had to stand by it and say, yep, this is, this is from me. This is, what I, this is my contribution to the story and the life of Jesus and the teachings for the church. So a book had to have an apostle's signature. The reason for that was because the apostles had firsthand experience of the life and ministry of Christ. They were people who were there. They were eyewitnesses. They would know if something didn't jive or, or fit together with what Jesus actually said or taught. And so having these firsthand witnesses was a necessity for accuracy. Uh, as we're thinking through the gospel accounts and we're thinking about the teachings, it's very important that an author, uh, the, the apostle um, gave his, lent his authorship to that book. So that means that all of the New Testament writings are actually dated very early to the historical events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. If you had to have a signature of an apostle, that means that every New Testament book would have been written during that time after the life ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and not far from it. Um, the content, here's another requirement for, for a book's inclusion, the content has to fit the truth. Uh, the content itself, if you were reading through it and you just felt like, man, this doesn't fit with what we know to be true, then obviously that wouldn't, that wouldn't meet the standard of Scripture. It had to have another feature about the acceptance is that it had to have this universal consensus of the church. It had to be books that the, that the church in general said, we stand by this. Uh, and that's exactly the case. As uh, I remember reading, and I don't have this information in front of me, but I remember reading about the lists that were being published pretty early on of what the churches in different regions in Africa and South Asia and these different places, and the people would say, okay, here's what we, you know, there are all these different writings out there, and here I'm going to share with you my, my playlist. I'm going to share with you kind of all the stuff that we've been reading as a church that we are just being built up by, that God is speaking to us through it. This is the, these are the scriptures that we've been interacting with. And at the same time, all these different churches in different regions published the lists, and they were all identical. They, they all had the same exact books on there, and it just revealed that there was this universal consensus of what was scripture and, and then what wasn't as well. Um, so it had to have that universal acceptance. They had to have this self-authenticating divine nature. You can read a book, you can even read a spiritual book, and it doesn't necessarily do anything to you. But if you read the Bible, God speaks through that word to your heart, and they were acknowledging that there are things that are written that actually communicate the voice of God to us. It's self-authenticating. It gives us the divine nature in the word of God. Um, and so those are some of the features. So if, if books could... You know, be raised to that level, if they fit all those standards, then they could potentially be brought into the canon, which is what it's called, the collection of those writings. And that's how we ended up with the New Testament. The, 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 there was a process for all the stuff, and some of it was good, but it, wasn't, it didn't fit everything, and that got set aside. And, and it's, it, it's not a detriment to us that we don't have it, because we believe that God has given us the words that we need in his, in his Bible. Um, now, the Gnostic Gospels and some of the other writings, they don't meet the criteria that we just laid out. Some of them make radical claims, and um, some of them just, they, they don't fit at all with the stuff that we've been sharing. So a scholar named Craig Blomberg, he says, a quick exercise comparing the New Testament Gnostic Apocryphal Gospels using a number of standard historical criteria proves remarkably telling. The canonical texts are all first century in origin, no more than two generations removed from the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, and no other gospel can be demonstrated to be earlier than the mid-2nd century, at least two generations later. So he's saying what you find when you compare what we actually have in the New Testament versus the other writings, they're categorically different. These ones are early, they're authenticated, these ones are written much later. He goes on to say, even very liberal and non-Christian biblical scholars quickly concede that there is no chance that this reflects the original version of the events. So some of these other writings, they're fascinating. I, I think it's worth your time to read the Apocrypha, some of those extra books to see what, what that's like, but they're different. They're just different from Scripture, and they didn't match up to the criteria of being accepted into the, into the canon. So the, the process for the Bible coming together is actually a beautiful process, and I think that... Um, it meets my satisfaction. I think that they had a great strategy for including the right books. And I do believe 
By the way, I do believe that God superintended the whole thing, that, it, that he was involved so that we can be confident we have what we need and uh, we're not missing anything. If a new book were to come forward, I don't think that would be scripture because that would mean God has left us in the dark for thousands of years. So I think God has given us exactly what we need. Well, here's another question. This one, I, I think I saw it show up in the text questions coming through. It says, how do we know? So, okay, sure, they put this together. You think they're the right books, but how do we know that even the right books that we have are anything like the originals? So imagine playing telephone, uh, or we did a game recently, Telestrations, where you draw a pic, you write a word down, you pass the little board, the next person draws a picture, the next person writes a word down. It's kind of like telephone, but you're drawing, so it just gets real weird and silly really quickly. And you get to the end, you go around the group that play in this board game, and then you reveal, what did we start with? What was the original word? And you just laugh your head off because you go, how did you get this? How did you think that? And then you draw these random pictures and you're looking at these pictures like, what is this? Um, some people think, well, isn't the Bible kind of like that? I mean, it's such a dated book that even if you have the right books, couldn't it have been kind of misconstrued down the line? So what, what was said and the events that actually happened? Well, once you get far enough away from it, isn't it pretty safe to say you probably don't really know what happened in the first place? because that communication process has broken down. That's something that Bart Ehrman uh, proposes. He's, he's, uh, he writes um, kind of against Christianity and against the Bible. He, he proposes that our Bibles are like a game of telephone gone wrong. But the analogy is very poor. Here's, here's the reason why. There are reasons why we can trust the words that we have revealing the events that really took place. Here's a few different reasons. One, it was an oral culture that was highly advanced in their ability to recall with precision. It was a culture that was built around this notion that when you talk, you hang on every word and you memorize those different words. That is so unlike me. My, my wife is more like that. So when she tells a story, every word is how it was spoken. When I tell a story, it's, you know, generally this is what they said. But she tells the story word for word. The culture that the Bible was, was preserved in was an oral culture. It was a culture where words really mattered and people paid attention to the specific things that came out of one another's mouths. So, so we have this oral culture that's preserving the word, the word of God. Um, the transmission of the, the message was a public thing. It had lots of different checks and balances as they told the story with one another in public settings, which would have given opportunity for people to go, excuse me, that's not at all how I remember it. I remember it being like this. But it was this public event where the, the message of the Bible was being transmitted in that public place. There were checks and balances. They had lots of different ways that they could look and see if things were kind of getting off track. They had uh, scribes and people who would look into it and they would translate and copy and you know, check into stuff. And so there were lots of different checks and balances built in to the system. And then the writings came into circulation very early. So, so these different New Testament writings, they were, they were published very early on while people was, were still around close enough to the actual events themselves that if there was a discrepancy, people would have noticed that. It was not like it, it happened and several hundred years later, we're finally telling the story and no one's around to tell us whether or not that really happened. It was published very early on, so people had the, the opportunity to check into it. Now, when you look at the amount of manuscripts, which are the, uh, the original documents, um, th there are actually 5,700 handwritten Greek manuscripts in existence. 5,700 different manuscripts that, that tell us, you know, that, that, that comprise what we have as the Bible, that are all these different documents that tell us, here's what this person was writing, and you can check it, and you can look into it, and you can see there are these thousands of different handwritten Greek manuscripts. Now, there was an event that happened, and most of you are probably familiar with this, but there was an event that happened in 1946, where some boys were out in a field in the Middle East, and they threw something up into a cave, and they heard pottery break. And so they'd crawl up there, and they found what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found in 1946 a, a boatload of documents, old manuscripts and things. And it's like, ooh, this could be a game changer. Like all of a sudden, you, you kind of hit this jackpot of all of these early writings. And now you might actually have evidence that what we have today is very different than how it was a long, long time ago. 
But what did we find when they evaluated those, those different documents? Everything was identical. That, that these early new manuscripts that they had unearthed were, were in harmony with everything else that's already been preserved for us. So, textual critics, this is, what, uh, this is a quote that I have. Textual critics of almost every theological stripe agree that we can reconstruct somewhere upwards of 97% of the New Testament text beyond a shadow of a reasonable doubt. We have enough manuscripts that can be put together that give us confidence. This is what really happened. These are the words that really uh, were spoken. So, how do we know that we have anything similar to the originals? We have plenty of proof that proves that we have the original words that, that were preserved for us. Okay, here's the next question. How do we know that the originals tell us anything like um, what really took place? Uh, and we've, we've kind of been talking about this already, but there's a few things that we can, we can add to that. The early dates of authorship point in that direction. The message is too weird to be fictional, right? If you're thinking about, okay, if I'm going to craft something to, to talk about, you know, whatever the case might be, we're not that creative ordinarily. And so when you look at the message that's in the New Testament, it's just strange. And, and the, the features that get highlighted, you go, well, that's unconventional. Um, that's unconventional that they would do that. I'll, I'll point some out as we go. But early historians confirm the events. You've got You've got these historians very early on who were all writing from these different perspectives, Tacitus, Pliny, Josephus. They were all writing about these different events, and when you look at what they all said, there's overlap. In fact, there's, there's significant things that overlap. They said things like Jesus was executed by a crucifixion in Judea during the time of Tiberius when he was the emperor and Pontius, Pontius Pilate was the governor. So they're identifying, here are certain things that happened. Different historians writing from different perspectives, all saying these events happened. And you can even look at the date stamp on them. You can look and see, here's who was leading, here's what was going on. These events really did take place. Um, the movement of Christianity spread from Judea to Rome. His followers worshipped him as God. He was called the Christ. His followers were called Christians. His brother was James. All these different things, all three of these different historians uh, agree on and collaborate on. That's six different historical elements that are confirmed by non-Christian historians. And I think that's pretty significant. So, so the message that we have is the message of the events that really did take place. All right, now let's look at the content of the Bible. One of the questions that people could ask is, you know, I can't, they, they might say it like this. This isn't a question, but it's just kind of their posture toward it. I can't believe the Bible because it's socially regressive. It teaches some messed up stuff like slavery, bigotry, and sexism. And people will get hung up on those different things. And, and they're looking at the content of the Bible, suggesting that what's presented there is so regressive that they can't get on board with it. But I want to I suggest that most of those topics are misunderstood by people who haven't actually read the Bible. The Bible teaches, uh, it, it really teaches this beautiful ethic, and it, it really moves followers of it toward things that, are, that, that go against even their own cultures of the day. So things like um, the Bible gives dignity and value to women, which was unconventional in their culture during that day. But the Bible consistently says, puts women in very important positions within the Bible. Uh, for instance, the, and I think this will show up later, I'm trying to remember this stuff, you know, there's so many different details, but, but the, the eyewitnesses to the resurrection were females. They didn't allow, at that time, they didn't allow females to testify in court. It's, isn't that fascinating then that the Bible is saying the most important event in all of history, females are going to be the ones who verify that it happened. So the Bible, it pushes us to recognize it's not regressive. It's actually helping us move toward the beautiful ethic that God has for us. It does describe, as we've talked about in the Q&A time, it does describe different events, but it doesn't always prescribe them. So it can say things like, you know, this happened and it wasn't right and polygamy and these different things, but it doesn't say that's what everyone should do. It's just simply telling us the, how those events unfolded. Instead, it prescribes this beautiful ethic of... Um, of dignity of all humanity, of, of um, things going against racism, of unity within the body of Christ. It teaches a beautiful sexual ethic. It teaches all kinds of things that I don't think are regressive at all. 
I think they're beautiful and they're as God intended. So the Bible is a book that actually the followers of it have taken on themselves all kinds of projects to better the lives of other people. Um, But I will say this, the Bible always confronts culture. So the Bible speaks a word that transcends all cultures and we're always going to find points in the Bible that will confront us. And we don't like that. We don't like to be told that we're wrong. We don't like to be told that we have to change, but the Bible always confronts us at some point. And, um, and, and again, that's just a very uncomfortable thing. But I think that the content of the Bible is actually beautiful. And those who follow it try to live beautiful lives. All right, we've got a couple more questions. How can I, how can I take a book seriously that has things like talking snakes and people walking on water? Right? You look at the Bible and you go, huh, that's weird. I've never seen that before. How can I take a book seriously that has these different things in there? And we already touched on it a bit in the Q&A, but, but, a, but a few things to note. Um, the Bible writes in different ways, and so sometimes I do think there are allegorical things. And, and there are things that are certainly historical and that happened, and the Bible itself defends them as real events that took place. There are other things that are described that are a little bit allegorical, and so I think it's being written in a way that kind of communicates a, a truth. But I do believe that there are miracles, that God shows up and he does stuff that transcends the, the natural order, that he, he's able to, to speak through a donkey, and he's able to walk on water, and he's able to do these different things that, that reveal that he, he's more powerful than what he's made, that he can break the natural order of things in a way that highlights his divinity, highlights his authority, highlights his ability. And so when I look at the Bible and I see these different things in there, for me, it's no issue. I believe that that actually points to God's power. Here's the last question, then we'll go to our time of Q&A. Some people will just honestly admit they don't really understand what the Bible's about. And sometimes it's a sincere question because they go, look, I was fascinated and I wanted to start into it, so I started at the beginning. And I started reading Genesis, and then I got to some weird skin stuff in Leviticus, and I just, I was, I was grossed out. There was mold on walls and people with skin diseases that had to be checked out, and I was just wondering, what on earth is this thing about? A lot of people will reject the Bible because they've, they've begun into it, and then they realize they don't really know what they're supposed to do with it. And to that, I just want to suggest to you Um, that there is a consistent and beautiful storyline throughout all of Scripture. And I do think it's important that we don't just read the Bible in isolation, but we read it in community. And I do think that God has gifted uh, his church with people who can help help other people understand the major themes in the Bible so that you can jump in at any point and not feel like you're in over your head. But but you kind of know, okay, here's where it's heading. Here's what this thing is about. And and the Bible, as we've already suggested, the storyline in the Bible is so beautiful and so compelling. Um, the fact that, you know, we, we were talking about it a couple weeks ago, there's a day coming, according to the very end of the Bible, where Jesus returns and he undoes all of the brokenness. And when I'm sitting in here and I'm thinking about the brokenness in our lives and the stuff that we're going through, that promise of the hope that Christ gives us, that Physical bodies are going to be made well again. That um, diagnosis, like my mom having a little tumor on the, front of her, on the front of her brain and stuff like that. And we read the end of the Bible and we go, Jesus is coming back to make all things new. He's coming back to set the world right again. He's coming back to reveal what it's supposed to look like for creation to live in harmony with his maker. The Bible presents that to us. The Bible shares with us, the beautiful story of what God is doing in the world. And so for me, the Bible is a book that we should love and cherish and share with other people. That's it for presentation two. So I'm going to invite the guys to come back up. We're going to do our Q&A for a little bit. And then, um, like I promised, we will dismiss early. So if you guys don't mind, join me up here. And I think when I was talking to B-Rad in the break, I don't think we had as many questions uh, coming in anymore. So if we don't have a ton, that's fine. We'll do a few, and then we'll, we'll see where we're at. And uh, yeah, you can call me a chicken if you want. I'll take it. All right, here we go. If, 
if we are taught to love all people, does that include gay people? Great question, very relevant question. Um, we as Christians, we need to be able to interact with this just straight on. We, we can't just kind of uh, try to skirt the issue or pretend like this isn't a big deal. Here's, here's what I want to say. Yeah, we need to love people of all different persuasions. We need to love people and be really good at it. And in fact, better at loving people than, than um, anyone else, really. Uh, but our love for people is, I think in our culture right now, our definition of love is very flimsy. And sometimes we misunderstand love to be total acceptance all the time. That if I love you, I could never tell you to do something different than what you want to do. That's kind of our, our narrative in our culture nowadays is what, what's called by sociologists, it's called uh, expressive individualism. And that's kind of the religion of our culture. It's that people, you know, they need to pursue whatever it is that, that, that got, that's on their heart and they just need to go after that with everything. And if anyone gets in your way, they're a problem. And, and, and I just want to kind of redefine love a little bit. Love, love isn't that wimpy. It doesn't just say, hey, I love you no matter what. It, wouldn't that be really poor parenting, if you said to your kid, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you, and if you're doing something wrong, I'm never going to correct you because I love you. Uh, I don't think that's good enough. So to this question, what I'm suggesting is we need to be able to love people regardless of their sexual orientation, but at the same time maintain uh, a faithfulness to what God has revealed in his scriptures about the sexual ethic which I believe is that um, God designed us male and female, and that wasn't accidental, and that he made us to experience our sexuality within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And uh, I think that that's actually a beautiful thing. And so I want to be able to let people know that I love them, and I'm going to walk beside them, and I'm not going to shun them or, or shame them or anything like that. But I'm also always going to hold up the beautiful ethic that the Bible presents to us. What do, what do you guys think about that? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, if, and we do need to think about what we mean by the word love. It's not, not an emotion as it's used commonly in the United States right now. It's uh, uh, about the way we behave with others, the way we respect others, the way we care for others, the things we do for others. Uh, if Christ loved us enough to die for us, how can I say I can't love somebody else? It just doesn't work, and it does not imply approval or anything like that, but we're called to love them, and in fact, we should love, especially love those who are experiencing unlove and hatred by society. Good point. Um, as Corey and Dwight both said, I mean, the simple answer is yes. Um, I, I want to expand it just a little bit. I mean, I think more and more as Christians, uh, we live in a society that doesn't see the world the way that we do. And I think we're going to have to come to grips with that and uh, think about what that means for how we interact with people. And I think we sometimes... Um, start in the wrong place with somebody that disagrees with us. We want to focus on either the opinion that they have that we disagree with or the behavior that we don't. Um, and we forget that it's an inward transformation that changed us, mm. the Holy Spirit working in us. Um, so I think, I think it's important to start there with people um, rather than worrying about this or that issue. Not that we shouldn't take a stand for what we believe and state what we think about on an issue, but in terms of interacting with that individual, one, I think we have to remember that every person we're going to encounter, no matter who they are, what they think, they were created in the image of God, and we should respect that and treat them that way. But in, if in love we want them to change because we think that that's uh, something they need to do to move closer to God, we got to start some. We got to start with the gospel in terms of. That that's the core um, truth that's going to transform them. Um, so I think sometimes we, you know, the 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 age old we um, major in the minors, oh, yeah. um, and I and I think that's important because I think we're going to encounter more and more people that disagree with us, and we're going to have to make a choice of where we're going to start the conversation. Yeah, yeah. 
There's probably so much that could be said. I think when 10 years of student ministry, this was the recurring text question that came in over and over again. Um, you know, I guess I want to say during those 10 years, there were students in the youth group with same-sex attraction that we differed on opinions. But here's one of the commitments that I had. The youth group needed to be a place where that person could experience love. Like Dwight was saying, a person shouldn't be shamed or, or um, experience, you know, hatred or bigotry in other environments. The church shouldn't be the place where that's happening. Um, so, so I do think we need to get really good at loving people that we differ in opinions on and we differ in what we, what we think God wants for them. Um, but I will just say this, and I, th- I think it's really, really important, especially on this topic. Alistair McGrath wrote a book called Heresy, and he looked at all the different teachings throughout the ages and just kind of highlighted, okay, this is where the church got off and had to do some self-correction. And he, in his, in his work, he kind of, at the end of it, he just said, here's the one thing that's consistent with every heresy. The church desires to be relevant to its culture. And the church wants to accommodate to the culture. And so what the church will do in every instance of false teaching, they make adjustments to the message. And I think, I think that right now we're kind of going through these growing pains in the church as culture moves further away from what I think the Bible teaches. And we have to decide if we're going to be strangely odd, you know, that we're going to go with what God says, even if it doesn't fit with our culture anymore. Um, and we're going, to, we're going to commit to kindness. You know, we're not going to be bullies about our, our beliefs, but we're going to try to love people and maintain our, our posture of um, hanging on to the truth because we believe that's a good thing for, for people. So that's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, if you want to keep talking about that, if, in fact, if what I'm saying is irritating to you right now, we should talk. Uh, if what I'm saying, you're like, oh man, I, I didn't know you felt that way. I don't know if I like my church anymore. Then we need to talk. And, uh, and I'd be happy to do that. I'd be happy to sit down with you and keep this conversation going. Let's go ahead and do another, another question. And many of Jesus' teachings, he makes it sound like our salvation status is dependent on the way that we live our lives. How did the church come to the conclusion that salvation is based on faith alone? You guys want to jump in? Well, one place it says, by grace you shall be, <laughs> you're saved by faith. <laughs> yeah. And not by works. Um, <clears throat> That, that's the struggle for us. You know, if, if, if it is faith, then it doesn't matter. How, and and it's, this has been a heresy, a historical heresy, that we can say we can believe and then do anything we want to do, and it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and then the other side of that is to say, well, you don't have to believe anything. You just got to do the right things. And, and both of them are, are wrong. Uh, you know, we are saved by faith, and, and yet... Uh, uh, the way we live does make a difference. You, we, there's that one scary scene that's in, that's in Matthew about the final judgment of people coming to Jesus, coming before the throne, saying, hey, we preached in your name, we healed with your name, we did miracles. Jesus, I never knew who you were. What? <laughs> that, that's kind of scary uh, to, 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 to say that, uh, to see that, uh, you know, boy, that didn't matter at all, but I, I think it does, and it, it's a tension for us. Uh, and, and I believe it's because if the faith is real, you know, the new life in us you know, compels us to live in a different kind of way, and, it, and it's never perfected while we're here, uh, but we are compelled to live differently. And so uh, we can't say we love heaven and live like the devil or vice versa. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I would just add that. I mean, I think a lot of times if you look at Jesus' teaching, a major point he's trying to make throughout his ministry is that the, the, the standard is impossibly high for us as fallen human beings to, to live up to. But we, you know, he's often using the Pharisees as a foil to um, make that point that, you know, the, the Pharisees were the religious uh, leaders uh, in Israel and they outwardly looked like they just had everything together. And his point often was, but God wants more than that. He doesn't want just these, these small details that you do, but then, you know, th- th- that on the more important things you don't live up to. 
Um, so he's often talking about um, how we live our lives as a way of pointing to our need for him. And then I think that becomes um, more explicit in, in especially Paul's teachings, but throughout the, the New Testament letters where how is it that we come to Christ? We come to him in, in faith, and that, that's ultimately what saves us because then that's how we take hold of Jesus uh, paying the penalty for our sins. But um, you don't realize you need that until you look at how, how high the standard is. Sure, sure. Martin Luther, I think, I think it was Martin Luther that said, we're saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. And he was suggesting that you trust in by faith, what Christ has done for you for your salvation. And when that happens, there's something, something that accompanies that. There's this righteous life that comes with that. You, you desire now, because you're saved by faith, you desire to live in a way that's pleasing to your Savior. And so I think we don't have to pit faith and works against each other unless you're trying to use works as a way to earn your salvation. And that's where we, we want to take a stand and say, no, you could never do that. You could never earn your way into heaven you have to receive that by faith. But having received that, don't just sit around and assume, like, like Dwight said, you can live like hell. Uh, you should be pursuing the God life and uh, doing that out of you know, joy and gratitude for what God has done for you. So I think the Bible continually draws these things together. We're saved by faith alone. We're saved by what God has done in sending his son. But we also pursue the righteous life that God empowers us to now live out. And like Dwight said, not perfectly, but we're striving for it, and we, we want to see it increasing in our lives. Let's go ahead and do another question. Why isn't the book of Enoch included in the Bible? Isn't it quoted in the New Testament? Yeah, good, good point. Good, good find. Um, one of you guys want to jump in? Sure, sure. That, that's part of the, the so-called apocryphal books. Uh, uh, Corey alluded to them earlier. Uh, those were Hebrew and Arabic writings that uh, were circulated among the Jews, and they made it into the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, hmm. uh, and, but never in the Hebrew Bible itself. And, and you know, when Christians were putting together the canon, uh, we decided to go with the Hebrew and, and not the Greek translation, which was which was uh, more recent. Uh, that is not to say that those things were not considered uh, worthy writings. They were just not considered scripture. Uh, and and uh, you hinted at it earlier, Corey, that there are lots of things out there that are worth reading uh, that are not scripture. Uh, and uh, uh, it's true today. It was true then. And so I, I think it's interesting to read that. Uh, Paul also quotes uh, some pure pagans uh, in him we live and move and have our beings from a, from a Greek poet. So, you know, being quoted uh, doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of the, the scriptural value of something. It may mean something about the truth that's there that's being picked up. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's all right. So. Yeah, good, good answer. I hope that's helpful. It's, that's very clear to me. Um, the Bible can quote whatever it wants. You know, the writers are, are capable of quoting whatever they want to. And like Dwight just said, they... Paul was quoting authors and pagans and, you know, the music of the day and things like that. It didn't, he wasn't saying, guys, this is the best music out there and it ought to be in our Bibles. He was just using it as a, as a way to connect with culture. So I think that's really, really good. All right, let's do another question. If God is a righteous God, even though we may enjoy salvation, is there still a reckoning for our sins? Is there a hierarchy of righteousness? That's a great question. That's a good question. I, you know, I, I, um, I think there's, you know, I, I, as I'm reading the New Testament, it talks about the, the day of judgment. And I believe that believers, too, have to go through the day of judgment. And uh, I know that there's some different opinions on that. But, but as, I, as I was reading it, I was just, you know, I feel like everyone must give an account, and I don't know how you get around that everyone, if you're going to say believers aren't a part of that. But I think, you know, everyone uh, is going to give an account. And the way that I think it works, and this, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think that there are rewards. And I know that that's a, an opinion that's debatable, but I really do think that there are rewards. So for a Christian, you're never going to stand before God and, and have to, like, you know, do something in purgatory or get some kind of punishment because the cross wasn't enough and you didn't, 
have the righteousness that he wanted from you. I don't think there's anything like that. We, we, we stand by faith in what Christ has done for us. But I do think for, for a Christian, it's a, it's a, you know, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and I do think there will be different uh, rewards. And um, I'm trying to remember, I, was, I took a class, and I don't remember who it was that, maybe it was Bruce Ware, and uh, he was talking about it. The rewards, I know that can mess people up a little bit because they think about how could that be fair? How would you be happy in heaven if you didn't get a great reward? Like if Dwight's way up front and I'm in the cheap seats, am I going to be able to enjoy myself because I'm like, man, I want to be with Dwight up there. Uh, and he basically, he, he gave a good an analogy. I found it helpful. He said, you know, what if it's like um, there are three different musicians and one just, you know, plays very infrequently, doesn't, isn't really a great musician at all. And then you've got somebody who's in a band and like plays on weekends and plays with their friends. And then you have someone who's in uh, a symphony, like in an orchestra. And he goes, all three of these people can go to a concert and appreciate music, but they have different capacities for appreciation. The one who's a, you know, in a symphony orchestra, that person is going to experience something at a greater degree than the other two, but all three of them are going to enjoy the experience. I don't know if that helps, but, but I do think as Christians, we, we, we will stand before the judgment seat. What do you guys think? Um, I mean, I think, you know, as you said, I mean, the, the Bible does say that, I mean, we will give an account, and, and I, to everyone, I don't know that there's a way around that. I don't think we have a perfect picture of kind of how everything plays out in that regard, but um, we will have to give an account. But while this is a difficult question, I don't like that. Um, what I do like about it is um, the emphasis on the righteousness of God, because um, because that, that's exactly why Jesus had to die to pay the penalty for our sins. Because if we're somehow going to escape that, a righteous God can't just overlook that. Um, so um, I don't know exactly what giving the account will involve, um, but I know what it won't involve, and it won't involve me paying the penalty for everything I deserve. Mm. Um, and it's because of God's righteousness that that's in the equation, but you know, sort of Jesus took care of it, so that's off to the side. Um, again, I, so I don't know what it looks like, but I'm thankful for that piece of it. Yeah, yeah. And that's our gospel message. I mean, that's the truth that the righteous died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And so Jesus offers us his righteousness. He pays the penalty for our unrighteousness. And, and that's how we stand before a holy and righteous God is simply based off of faith in what he accomplished for us. Um, but again, I think it's wise for us to say some of the details of how that's actually going to shake out, uh, they're mysterious. And I don't know if we have a clear picture of how that exactly is going to work. And I think that's okay to just be honest about. Um, so let's go ahead and do, let's do one more question. I'm feeling one more and then we'll peace out. Uh, saved by grace through faith. This is a great one. What exactly do we have to have faith in? Teed up for us. Have at it, gentlemen. What do we have to have faith in? Uh, I, I think our understanding is that it, the faith is uh, uh, directed toward God, what God has done in Jesus Christ and who Christ is. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we start adding things to that or taking things away from that, uh, we, we've distorted what the meaning uh, of faith is all about. Uh, and, and I would add two other segue or, you know, uh, uh, diversions to that. You know, one is that uh, uh, faith is not just a, an act of believing. Uh, the New Testament understanding of faith is, is it's an act and, and it's an attitude. It's a relationship to, to something else. It's, it's not just saying, oh yeah, I believe that. Uh, that that's not what faith is. Uh, the other is that, that, that salvation is not a matter of getting a ticket punched so that we get a free ride to heaven. Uh, it, it's interesting that in Greek, the, the, the word is a medical term for healing. 
and, and, and the salvation that's offered to us in Christ is the healing of the fourfold alienation that's talked about in the book of Genesis. The, the alienation from God, the alienation from one another, alienation from, cre from creation, and even the alienation within ourselves. Mm. Uh, so it, it's not just a matter of a ticket. It's a matter of change of who we are. So mm. Mm. That's really good. That's, that's the... That's the gospel, guys. We believe in Christ and what he's done for us. And, and, you know, that saving work is comprehensive, as Dwight just shared. It's just, it's a beautiful reality that we have. And, and, and uh, if you're asking that question because you've never done that, you've never placed your faith in Christ for that salvation, uh, I would love to chat with you. I'm sure these guys would as well to just hear um, your story. And if, you're, if you want to surrender your life and place your faith in the, in the God who can, do that fourfold healing for you. Um, do, let's do it. Let's pray tonight. Let's, uh, let's trust in him. But let me pray right now, and then we will dismiss. Um, Lord, I am so grateful that we were able to do, to do this. I'm so grateful that we're here, and I pray, Lord, that you would use the conversations that we've had tonight in a way that's helpful for everyone who's, who's here tonight and, and anyone who might tune in later. Lord, I just ask that this... Uh, was beneficial and that you're pleased by the way that we talked about you and talked about your word and talked about the salvation that you give us in your son. Um, I, I ask, Lord, that you would um, just inspire us to, to talk more openly about this faith with one another and with other people as well. Uh, so I pray that tonight was helpful for that. And uh, I'm grateful that everyone came out. I'm grateful um, that we were able to do this together. Now I ask that you would bless us as we go. Keep us safe as we drive home and uh, let us appreciate and love Jesus, the Lord and Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Uh, one quick announcement. We won't do that, that video be read. Um, one quick announcement. Um, one of the next steps that we have for somebody who maybe isn't fully integrated into the life of the church yet, uh, we're going to run another Alpha course and that's going to start in March and we're going to do it after church on Sundays. It'll be an alpha lunch, and if you're not plugged in at a high level in a group, it would be a great opportunity for you to meet more people and connect with other people and, uh, and just keep this conversation going. Alpha is a great program for having discussions like this where it's not just a few people talking, but you get to contribute as well, and you get to share how you think about this stuff. And, and it's a very safe and open environment to explore your faith at a deeper level. So starting mid-March, we're going to do alpha again. And uh, if your group, if you're in a group already and you want to redo it, great. Uh, but if you're not in a group, we're going to work really hard to get you connected with other people so you can do life together. And uh, we hope that's a benefit for you. Thank you guys for coming out tonight. Please be safe as you drive home. Uh, if you can, hang out and help put stuff away for a few minutes. That's wonderful. If not, we'll see you next time. Love you guys. <laughs>